Part of the challenge of receiving feedback is if I'm really hearing something, something upsetting that I need to see about myself, um, I don't feel safe. I don't feel safe from myself, let alone from you. And that's, I think, also one of the conundrums at the heart of psychological safety, which is psychological safety is something I need in order to actually feel uncomfortable, which is a weird invitation for people particularly maybe among high achievers because we hold ourselves to really high standards and we expect a lot of ourselves. And so learning that we fell short or made a mistake or let somebody down or hurt someone or didn't behave in the way our ideal selves that we like to imagine that we embody in the world, but of course fall short all the time is really hard. And there's no getting around that. This is the Visible Voices podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word about the Gritty Nurse podcast. Hi, my name is Amy, and I am the co-host and co-founder of the Gritty Nurse podcast, an unfiltered discussion related to health and healthcare. On our podcast, we shy away from nothing, discussing hot topics in healthcare such as mental health, social justice, health equity, women's rights, and women's health, and nursing as a profession. Hi, listeners. Thanks so much for joining. And today I'm bringing you part two of my conversation with lawyer author Sheila Heen. With Douglas Stone, Sheila has written the book Difficult Conversations. That was the focus of our last episode. In today's conversation, we're focusing on a second book she and Doug wrote. Thanks for the feedback. The science and art of receiving feedback well, even when it's off base, unfair, poorly delivered, and frankly, you're not in the mood. Sheila is a graduate of Occidental College and Harvard Law School. She's a lecturer on negotiation at Harvard Law School. She's a member of the Harvard Negotiation Project, and she's co-founder of Triad Consulting Group. Let's get to the conversation where we're focusing on feedback. So I want to do a bit of a deep dive now on thank you for the feedback. And before we started recording, I said, you know, Sheila, it strikes me that probably everything is feedback, verbal, nonverbal, actions, inactions, And you said, yeah, and even when it's not happening to us, what happens to other people is feedback for us. I think that two things are true. One is we react as if everything happening in the world is feedback about us. This is actually the danger of social media. Like, why doesn't my life look that wonderful and picturesque and fill in the blank? Why am I sitting at home while everyone else seems to be having such a great time? Um... But it's also true that, that we have an amazing capacity to ignore the signals that other people are sending us about the ways in which we're impacting them um, and the ways in which they want us to change, at least just a little bit. And so I think that we have a really conflicted relationship with feedback itself, but also um, that it is our relationship with ourselves and our relationship with the world. Um, and so, yeah, it's pretty much everything. Yeah. You, when you talk about the book, when I've heard you speak in conversation with others, you said for a long time, we talked about how to give feedback. And then now this is flipped 180. This is how to receive feedback. And in our last episode, we talked about psychological safety. Part of the challenge of receiving feedback is if I'm really hearing something, something upsetting, 
that I need to see about myself, um, I don't feel safe. I don't feel safe from myself, let alone from you. And that's, I think, also one of the conundrums at the heart of psychological safety, which is psychological safety is something I need in order to actually feel uncomfortable, which is a weird um, invitation for people, um, particularly maybe among high achievers, because we hold ourselves to really high standards and we expect a lot of ourselves. Um, and so learning that we fell short or made a mistake or let somebody down or hurt someone or didn't behave in the way our ideal selves that we like to imagine that we embody in the world, um, but of course fall short all the time, is really hard. And there's no getting around that. To illustrate just how everyday, common, all the time feedback is, what are some feedback items, circumstances that you've had today? <laughs> um Okay, so let's see. I woke up at, <laughs> I stepped on the scale. <laughs> I then had my dog looking at me accusingly. Why haven't I been fed yet? Did you forget about me? Um, you know, I, I, we're working on the, the rewrites for the third edition. I had sent Doug some things last night. I got notes back from him and noticed he changed a whole lot of things. I mean, that, that was part of the fun and the challenge of, of writing the feedback book together, which is that the upside is that when you have a co-author who you work well with, the upside is, is that you really appreciate what the other person has put into it and like, oh, thank goodness you made progress on this because I was totally stuck. And like, I really see how far this has come since you were working on this draft of this chapter. And so there's a built-in appreciation system, but there's also a built-in judgment evaluation system. Um, we don't tend to track changes for that reason. I hand this draft to you, and your only job is to make it better. And that might mean that you delete 90% of what I did and start over um, or completely restructure it. So, you know, the writing process um, is a really intense feedback system. I mean, I could go. I could go on. It would take us the rest of the day to list the things today so far. Yeah. Just to sort of take home the point for the audience that feedback is everywhere and it's happening all the time, whether or not we've actually processed it as such. And for me, when I read the book, I'm like, oh my gosh, all of this is feedback. I think you think like, oh, it's the conversation I had with so and so, but it's not. It's so much more, and it's everywhere. It's all the time, and it's limited only to our own. Uh, openness to reception? I think it's limited to our openness to reception. And it's also limited to the kinds of relationships that we build, and how much we let ourselves be open, and the people we choose to be open with. Um, because we I, I do think it's important to note that many of us have some people, <laughs> individual people in our lives, um, we all have a little list, and they're just an endless stream of criticism and judgment or one-upping or whatever, right? Maybe because they have their own issues. It's not really about you, but it's really painful. And sometimes people will hear us saying, you need to work hard to get good at receiving feedback. It's a, it's a distinct leadership skill, actually. And they hear that to say, there are no boundaries. And you should leave yourself open to everybody else's judgments and, and advice. And in fact, that is not 
our intention. And if you have someone like that in your life, chapter 10 is for you. When to turn away feedback. Um, because I think that's actually, in many cases, a really healthy and important choice to make. Yeah. You particularly have a feeling on email, and I've loved what I've heard. Uh, you've said email is a serial monologue. Um, it can be dangerous. It can be dangerous because when I email you um, about something important um, and some feedback for you, I've probably thought about it long and hard. I've crafted my whole story about what I want you to understand, but it's all my perspective. Mm -hmm. I can't really ask questions and get answers in real time by email. Um, so you read it, you're devastated. If there's even 10% that's not factually correct or that you can argue with, that's where your attention's going to go. And now you write back your perspective, um, which is now your monologue to me. And and so email and, and even text, et cetera, is the place where conflict often escalates the fastest. When if we would just even pick up the phone, the old-fashioned phone, or talk in person, we would actually have a richer and much more efficient conversation because we're checking, like, well, what do you, I noticed this. What did you think of that? Right. And instead, we're, you know, contemplating lying awake and writing each other these long reasons, explanations for why we're right. The positive to negative ratio of conversations, of feedback, um, there is reason uh, and importance in having the negative, but not too much negative. And you've quoted that ratio of five to one versus 10 to one. I'm wondering if you can expand a bit on that research. Yeah, so this isn't this research doesn't come from me. We're riffing on research done by John Gottman um, and colleagues up in Seattle, looking at interactions between spouses. Actually, so um, how many bids he calls them are positive or negative? Um, so a, a bid is as simple as, you know, do you want some coffee or hey, it's beautiful today, and the other person acknowledging what you have to say, seeing you in that moment, even if it's just a grunt. Um, so what Gottman suggests is that um, the ratio is about five to one in terms of positive interactions and negative interactions. Or um, And actually, a negative interaction is better than no response, where people just don't feel seen or acknowledged like I'm even in the room or in the relationship. So that's what leads to the question, well, wouldn't 10 to 1 be better? You know, you've got one negative interaction for nine positives or 10 positives, whatever, however that goes. And Gottman says it feels better in the short term, but what he's seeing in the longer term is that it means that one or both parties are not bringing up things that are important to them. They're avoiding talking about some things that they're better off actually talking through and working through. And so it's just sitting there festering over time. Very much I enjoyed both books. And there was so much that overlapped for me for which is difficult conversations, which is feedback. And one of the things that you framed was this concept of blame absorbers and blame shifters. Walk us through that. So our observation is that each of us leans in one direction or another, that when something goes wrong, where do you point the finger first? Some of us are blame shifters. It's never our fault. It's always something else. I was late today because the traffic was bad. The dog stole my shoe. Um, couldn't find a place to park. Others, the first place you point is at yourself. 
I should have left earlier. I can't believe I didn't love myself enough time. I should have known better. You can be different in different contexts at work or at home or in different relationships. Um, but the point is that whichever way you lean, it leaves out at least half the equation. So for absorbers, first of all, isn't it great to be an absorber? You take responsibility. That's very rewarded in a work context. But your challenge is that you may let other people off the hook. You're so quick to take all the responsibility that you don't turn around and say to your team members, hey, I can't fix this by myself. Like, I'm going to need you guys to do some things differently also. On the flip side, if you're a shifter, it seems great because nothing's ever your fault, but ex your experience of life is that life happens at you and you have no control. The other thing that I find interesting is that shifters and absorbers sometimes find each other, right? Because it's the perfect relationship. We mm -hmm. both agree it's the absorber's fault. And that is stable for a while until the absorber gets tired of always being the one who has to fix something or change something or apologize. Yeah. Something analogous that strikes me as givers and takers, that they complement each other until they don't anymore. Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. And I bet there's a relationship between them. So so the, the, the idea behind contribution and the idea behind really seeing my contribution is feedback for me, right? Um, is that whatever your tendency, whatever you see first, be sure to ask the opposite question um, so that you have a, a more complete and balanced sense of how we got here and what we each need to change. One of the many reasons why I loved Thank You for the Feedback is it gave practical ways to ask for feedback. And I spent years trying to figure out how to ask for feedback. And in the hospital, in the emergency department, students will say at the end of shift, do you have any feedback for me? Do you have any feedback for me? And it's such a challenging question because how can I, when can I, and you know there's this dynamic of they want to get a good grade or they're actually, they've been told to ask for feedback and that's why they're asking for it in that way. But I sort of wish that maybe when they start med school, they're given the book, thank you for the feedback, so they know perhaps how to reframe the question. And I've spent years working on this where I give a lecture, people are like, that was a great lecture. And sort of my high self monitors, like they're just saying that because they said that to all the speakers, they didn't really like the speaker, it didn't stand out. And so a friend <laughs> <Yes>. of mine <laughs> said to me, why don't you say, well, could you tell me like, three things that you liked about it. And so I tried doing that as a follow-up because that's I'm looking to improve. I'm looking to be better, growth mindset. And what I find is I think a lot of people are just doing niceties because I'm like, oh, what specific did you like about it? They're like, uh... And like they're caught off guard because <laughs> no one ever follows that up. Most yes. people are just like, thank, thank you, thank you, you, thank you, thank yeah. you. And I'm yeah. just like, you did? Really? Okay, can could, you tell me? Could you write an essay on that <laughs> and get it back to me by tomorrow? Exactly. <laughs> Um, but, um, what if you asked, what if you asked, Ooh, what jumped out at you about it? I'm so curious. Mm -hmm. And now it's suddenly about them mm. rather than about you. And now I'm so curious if you would get a different answer. I like that. Um, another thing I liked, um, from the book was sort of what's one thing, what's one thing I should continue to do. What's one thing, you know, I'm, I'm doing that's limiting the quality of this meeting. Yes. Yeah, the, the one thing idea is something that I use a lot. So instead of asking, do you have any feedback for me? Um, asking, hey, what's one thing? And you can complete the sentence any way you want. 
What's one thing that if we changed it would make this meeting more effective? What's one thing that you see me doing that you think is getting in the way? What's one thing that if I could change it would make a difference to you? You can tailor it to any, but like it's a totally casual question that you can chat about as you walk down the hall. So it also just lowers the stakes because I think when I'm asked, do you have any feedback for me? I think I I was supposed to prepare for this or something. And this feels like they're saying, here's my identity. Do you want to mess with it? And I'm like, yeah, no, not really. Not this morning. I'm kind of in a hurry. Right. I also went, I would have a weekly meeting and I would meet with the same colleague and I would say, do you have any feedback for me? And I could tell it just wasn't, it was not setting him up to be able to really give me feedback. And I wasn't, it wasn't so, I was reading about ways of eliciting, soliciting, bringing someone into helping you be better and get feedback. So this is similar to what you've proposed, not one thing, but I do start, stop, continue. One thing that you think I should stop, one thing you think I should start, and one thing that I should continue. I think that is such a great mechanism because, and partly because it puts it in the language of what's in their heads. They're like, oh yeah, stop doing this. Cause that's what they're thinking. Stop doing this. And so it's just like, you you can say it out loud. Just say it out loud to me. We don't have to put it in a fancy bow, you know, box with a bow. Yeah. Um, and so it invites them just to share their internal voice and, and, and also the fact that it's just one thing. Yeah. This concept of feedback, again, is now permeated medical school, medical school trainings. And so right now it's still at the stage of, do you have any feedback for me? Meaning at the end of shift. And so I think it has opportunity for evolution. But I think similarly, it used to be one meeting at the end of the year, your annual review, and you weren't getting any of that feedback opportunities for change along the way. So not just the physicians in the audience, but for all people, what are some other ways that they can be open and solicit, elicit feedback? So one of the things that we learned from colleagues of ours, um, so Roger Fisher, Alan Sharp, John Richardson, and David Metcalf wrote a book called Getting It Done. And in Getting It Done, they talk about three types of feedback, appreciation, coaching, and evaluation. The easy way to remember them is, is just ace, right? So appreciation is is just feeling seen, noticed, valued, that somebody noticed that you went above and beyond and cared enough just to mention it to you and and feeling noticed and valued is has a huge impact on burnout and motivation and engagement etc and it's in short supply coaching is anything that is designed to help me get better at something to learn to improve to try something new to notice what i could change to be a stronger contributor or whatever it would be so coaching, coaching is a particular f- form in the business world of how to help someone learn in an elicitive way. We include that, but it's actually the bigger category. Correction, suggestion, advice, role modeling. If it's designed to make me better, it counts as coaching. Evaluation tells me where I stand, how I stack up against some set of expectations. Am I on track? Should I throw my hat in the ring? Or like, are you secretly laughing that I even think that I'm close? And I kind of, psychological safety is related to feeling safe enough that I'm on track. Um, and reviews, end of the year reviews, are evaluation. And the problem is that feeling judged, we have such a big reaction to feeling judged that it drowns out our ability to hear 
appreciation and coaching. So the, the general idea is that appreciation and coaching actually should happen week in and week out throughout the year at the end of shifts. Like, Hey, what's one thing you appreciated, um, that I did today? What's one piece of coaching for something I could work on or improve or that you noticed evaluation really, um, only has to happen a couple of times a year. Or if I feel anxious that I'm not sure in this new role, this is what you were looking for. Um, and so part of what you can do is talk about those three kinds um, with the people that you work with on a regular basis. And then just check in with each other. Hey, what kind of feedback would you do you feel short on this week? What can we do to support each other this week? Um, and so then we share responsibility for getting the kind of feedback I need right now. You need all three over time to learn and grow. But what I need today might be totally different than what I needed next week. Yeah. Bringing them into the conversation, asking them to join you, being curious together and maintaining that psychological safety. I think that that's right. The Risa Wrap-Up. I loved this conversation. I know, audience, you're rolling your eyes and saying, Risa, you say that about every guest, every episode, but it's not true. This particular conversation stood out for a few reasons. I had the feeling that I could have spoken with Sheila for hours. We had a lot on which to speak, a lot of thoughts, a lot of analysis of people, of life, of conversations, of feedback. Well, you get it. So after our meeting, I asked Sheila for feedback. And when she sent me the email, I was a little hesitant, a little bit of trepidation in opening because I I thought, what is she going to say? And unsurprisingly, it was warm, it was generous, it was kind. And she really got me thinking. Of all guests, she's one who really jazzed on the mission and concept behind the visible voices and amplifying people, amplifying their stories, and trying to, well, create space for important stories. Here's what she wrote. This is something you may decide you specifically don't want to do. But of course, you notice that I asked you about your own experiences or observation, or examples a couple of times, probably to make it a bit less of an interview and a bit more of a conversation. I think there are lots of reasons you may not want to share those things. This isn't actually advocacy, just a noticing of the various costs and benefits on both sides of that equation. Safe examples, which skirt the confidentiality exposure concern that I often have, sometimes are from quite a while ago or shift the context or circumstances to create anonymity and focus mostly on your own experiences and reflections. I think because your tone is so warm and a we're in it together and your theme is visible voices, I wanted your voice to be visible too. Well, thanks, Sheila. I am trying, I am trying, I am trying to make voices visible both those of others, as well as my own. See you next week, audience. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare equity and current trends. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. You can listen on whatever platform you subscribe to podcasts. Our team includes Stacey Gitlin and Dr. Giuliano DePorto. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode, please contact me, Risa at thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. I'm based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I'm on Twitter at Risa E. Lewis. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued.